Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3Cast. My name is Brian, with me as always are Zach and Vince. We are going to get to DC Comics that released uh, on November 8th, 2017, in just a few minutes. But first we're going to talk about Watchmen. We are in the middle of our Watchmen reread, and this week we are going through issues 7, 8, and 9 of the classic Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons book. We hope you're reading along with us, and uh, let's dig right in. So, issue 7 is um a a uh shall we say it's it's most famous for the the hallelujah scene from the movie <laughs> uh it's it, it's the it's hallelujah i heard there was a secret chord no i'm not doing that um <laughs> but there's a you know it, it's the night owl silk specter issue it's where we see their relationship blossom it's where all the ed jokes about this book come from <laughs> <laughs> um, we get to see some sweet, sweet, uh, Night Owl Cooley. Um, yeah, uh, any particular thoughts on issue seven? Um, not particularly. I think... This issue does have one of the like more visually striking sequences I think in the book um the the dream sequence mm-hmm. um that he has but yeah I now that we're like this is you know I guess either my second or third read through, but you know, it's my first one in a really long time. This issue and issue eight are kind of a snooze fest, I think. Yeah. They're very important to the overall story of Watchmen, but there's not the metatextual benefiting from multiple reading stuff that is in other issues. Right. Uh, especially chapter eight. Once we get to chapter eight, that one really is like, you know, okay, we spent the last few issues really doing some deep character work, and now we got to get back into the plot and move things forward. And, and chapter eight really does that. The thing that I appreciated about seven that I hadn't so much in the past is that it doesn't really do any of the art tricks that some of the earlier issues do, you know, like the symmetrical issue or some of the stuff with, um, Dr. Manhattan and time and things like that, you know, or the, or the Rorschach imprints and things, you know, symbolism in that way. But I was really appreciative of the pacing of issue seven. I, I feel like, I could be wrong, but while while I read it, I felt like all the events were happening very much in in a in a flow of time that was very consistent, and I felt that from just viewing the art. Like things moved very slowly and deliberately, and at like a consistent pace to me. You know, they they did move slowly. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> I I understand that. I I'm, totally. I'm agree an impatient with the, millennial. 
<laughs> it, it took me as long to read these three issues of Watchmen as it did all of the issues that I read for for Rebirth this week. Oh, sure. Yeah, I totally get that. I get yeah. that. I see that. I just really was impressed the way the art did. Like, it felt like a slow dance in some ways, and I feel like that's appropriate for, for, the, story. for the story being, like, sort of the the romance and the finding of romance between Dan and Laurie and, and, you know, them seeing each other for who they are. And it really felt appropriate for this issue. I agree with you though, Zach, like this is where the story starts to lag for sure. Um, I felt that a lot more in issue eight because I feel like there's less of a flow to that issue in particular, but, um, yeah, that was one one thing I'll say about this issue is that the, the I really enjoyed the deliberate pace of the art, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm being un, like unreasonably. I'm I'm kind of you know being a little facetious in my criticism. It's still it's still very good. It's um it is just like less interesting I think in subsequent read throughs because you aren't. It's more plot focused than character focus. Yeah, um, I, I'll say my least favorite part of issue seven is how a, a good third of the issue is Dan saying something like, "This is my super spectrometer, but you wouldn't care about that." And then Laurie saying, "Like, no, I do care about that." And then a second later, "This is my other super spectrometer, or you wouldn't care about that." And Laurie's like, "No, I do care about that." This is it. Kind of, I feel like it was very repetitive that whole section. Um, He's just very self-deprecating. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I do want to say there is some shit in this book and specifically in this issue that I feel like is so spot on for 2017. It's creepy. Like there's the part where, um, they're watching the news and they're talking to the, um, the editor of the new frontiersman. And he says, frankly, isn't it time we reassess Rorschach as a patriot and American? And I feel like that is completely the Fox News take on Rorschach. Like, there would have, you know, here's this vigilante that it turns out is right wing, and all of a sudden, the network that was bashing him the day before would now be reevaluating him as a patriot. I mean, that's that's Trump. That, you know, <laughs> that, that that's both how Fox News treated Trump, and it's also, you know, Trump... 14 hours apart, tweeting how Ed Gillespie's going to remove crime from the state of Virginia, and then throwing him under the bus 14 hours later. Like, that's literally the world we live in now. Things are reevaluated based on what's, like, politically convenient all the time. And so that really struck me as, like, wow, that's a that's a super... I mean, that obviously, those type of things have always happened. But that feels like a very 2017 moment in a book that is, you know, 30 years old. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to get more of it, baby. Yeah, we are. I also want to say that uh, on subsequent reads, I feel like the erectile dysfunction thing is not as overt as I remembered it originally. I mean, at one point he does say how, how impotent he feels. But When like, I got to that panel, I, ch- I think I chuckle every time. Yeah. Um, but I feel like in my mind, he goes like, uh-oh, in the middle of them, you know. <laughs> trying to fuck and that, that like obviously Forrest Gump exactly yeah and that, like, that doesn't really happen uh, thankfully it doesn't happen uh, 
Well, he doesn't shoot early. He can't get it up. So, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I but know. but I, I do like that side of I, I I picture him saying, like, you know, yes, Archie. You know, uh, fly us around, baby. Um, but but overall, I, it's a, this is a bit of a, a bit of a slower a slower portion in the story, and then we get to issue eight, which um, which deals with the the busting out of Rorschach. I remember when I first read Watchmen, however many years ago, that was the thing that really blew my mind. I didn't see the story going there, and uh, on subsequent readings, it obviously is uh, it's not quite as as shocking as as it was then, but I still find it a a bit of an out of character move, and I can't tell if I like that out of character decision or if it still feels a little forced to me. What do you guys think? Um, I don't know. I guess I don't have a problem with it. I've never, I've never considered that. I mean, Dan is having new doors put on his house the entire time to keep Rorschach out of his house because yeah. Rorschach creeps him out. And now But I feel like it yeah, it but it came right off the back of them sort of reclaiming their identities yes, yes. as, you know, I yeah. guess that always rang true for me. Yeah, I think so too. And it also, you know, they're in the face of really crazy times, you know. World War 3 is on the horizon. Right. That detective's already, you know, like, kind of snooping around, and I think, I think it was kind of a, a culmination of all of those things. I, yeah, I, I kind of, I buy it. I guess that's part of the problem with with it being a twelve issue series is that you can't. There are certain things that, for certain readers, are going to always feel rushed because right. you have to get through this big, you know, these sort of big character moments within a limited time span. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say that I forgot about the sort of weird subplot about the writer who's gone missing. Ah, uh, totally forgot about that. Yeah, and the yeah, and the artist. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about that too. I I saw that and I was like, oh. Yeah, the monster's right there. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, that's that's always been kind of, and we'll talk about that more next week, I think, as we close out the book. But that whole subplot, I I think, has always seemed kind of weird to me. Um, but we'll save that. Yeah. Um, there's a... Uh... There's a uh, there's that really uh, horrifying Hollis Mason thing that the issue in, ends on. Yeah. Um, you know, with him essentially being beat to death on Halloween. Um, but yeah, this I mean, obviously breaking Rorschach out is the is the really important part of this issue, and everything else that happens around it is sort of uh, you know just reinforcing that general theme. Um, and sort of setting the stage for the next issue, 
Uh, any other issue eight thoughts? Mm. No, again, I do think that this is an issue that the movie really um, kind of overpowers for me. Not because it was better, but just because of I don't. I, it was really hard to read this issue and not like have those scenes from the movie playing in my head. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, agreed. Um, all right, well, issue nine, this is the big John and Lori on Mars issue. Um, I know we were going to try and have our friend Greg Matasevich on the show this week to talk about this. He, he said there's a sequence in this issue that is his favorite of all time, but he is sick. So he might he might join us next week for 10, 11, and 12, and I'll ask him what his favorite sequence from this issue is. Um, I don't want to say I have a hot take on this, but I do have a, a sort of a, a take that is different with this read-through than others. Um, but I want to hear what you guys think of this issue first, because I know we are all really, really high on the first Dr. Manhattan issue. I like this issue as much if not maybe a little bit more than the first Dr. Manhattan issue, I think. Yeah, I think it's a pretty incredible bookend to the... It's kind of heartbreaking, too, you know, but um, but it's a, it's a great, like, bookend to what he's feeling and doing in that issue. Um. And I love the visuals in it. The The visuals are just stunning. The colors are amazing. Just the, like, pink and purples everywhere mm-hmm. on Mars. Just what a way to depict that world that he's creating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My sort of medium take is that it's, the, it's visually the best issue of the series. But mm. I find that the Laurie stuff really clunked it up in parts for me. Um, like I, I, this is a really important issue for her character. She has to come to the realization that the comedian's her father, and all that. I just feel like she's she is so alarmed by being you know teleported to Mars and she can't breathe and she's throwing up. And then a second later, she's like, "My mother had a boyfriend, whatever." And she just goes into these like very very deep dives into her own history that don't feel like they would have been the conversations happening in that moment. I know why they're necessary and. Again, I'm looking as I'm reading it this time. I'm reading it with the most critical eye I've ever read the book before, because we're sure. talking about it and all that. So I just feel like that's maybe the weakest part of of this issue is 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 sort of how comfortable Laurie gets with sort of deep dive psychoanal- psych- psychoanalysis of her life, seemingly in the middle of this very important other event that's happening. Yeah. I guess I see that. I I think what I think about it is that it's it's done in stark contrast to the lack of humanity on Dr. Manhattan's part. Right. Um I get what you're saying. Yeah. I that didn't occur to me while reading it, but um you know, maybe on a future reading I'll think about that, but um I think the thing that just stands out to me is is how you know, when we started off with with John Osterman, basically, um, he was losing his humanity 
I mean, even when we first met him as Dr. Manhattan, he was losing what it meant to uh, treat another person with thought or compassion, you know? Mm-hmm. When we first saw him, I think it was like one of those uh, sex scenes where it's, you know, multiples of him while right. he's still working in the other room. And so he's already losing his humanity. But then to see how different he is now in what seems like such a relatively short amount of time, um, that's what makes the issue work for me. You know, I totally buy the premise that Alan Moore sets up with him. And then by contrast, like, I really felt for Laurie, you know? Oh, I don't think that stuff is ineffective. I just think yeah. it, it the, the transition between her being pissed off and scared into being reflective reads a bit off. Okay. Yeah, again, I guess that, again, comes down to, you know, the the constraints of it being a 12-issue series and him, you know, having to accomplish that in, in one issue. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I just really like this issue for... I mean, you know, for one, it's just like a very kind of like heartwarming... Heartwarming is maybe not the right word, but it's... I mean, you really feel sympathy for the comedian... Yeah, yeah, you really do. You feel sympathy for the comedian, which is interesting, you know, especially like in light of all the, you know, allegations that are coming out and uh, regarding, um, you know, sexual assault and things today and, and not, you know, I, it's hard, like I see you, you do kind of feel sympathetic for the comedian here, but at the same time, you know, he's still... Oh, he's a son of a bitch, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and so it's kind of interesting, you know, maybe how that was supposed to come off in the eighties versus how it comes off now. Mm-hmm. I don't, um, I don't know if I feel sympathy. Yeah, him. exactly. I mean, I, I guess you do. I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe sympathy is the wrong word, but you, right. you, you understand the character so much better. Right. Right. But then also, I mean, just, you know, zeroing in on the value of human life and, I love that bit at the end where he's kind of like, let me find the, uh, yeah, he said, he's basically, you know, talking about how everyone is a, is a miracle, but he says the, the world is so full of people, so crowded with these miracles that they become commonplace and we forget, um, which I just think is like a really good line, good insight, um, Yeah, I just yeah, I really like this issue for like what it does for his character and and also like just how it plays with, you know, his perception of reality. Like you said, I think it's like a really good bookend to the first issue um in that regard. Uh I just wanted to say that how like I forgot um I forgot about this issue and then when immediately when I saw the cover the cover is so striking with that bottle of the nostalgia perfume that like I immediately knew what the issue was going to be despite my having forgotten all about this. So again, kudos to the entire Watchmen art and design team for coming up with some really striking imagery that, that brings you right into its world in this really unique way. 
So one of the thoughts that popped into my head as I was reading this week was how episodic this book is and how I wonder if the book would would read differently if it wasn't if there wasn't like the John issue and the Dan issue and all that if it was kind of all more happening concurrently I'm not saying it would be better or worse it's just it, I I guess another thing I noticed on this read through more than others is just how episodic it is Mhm that's all. Um, so next week we're going to finish up this book, and uh, I'm uh, I'm really excited to reread the ending because I feel like I feel like the ending is one of those things that is uh, that is so that that is so different in the film, and we're going to deal with the film in a few weeks. Um, oh but, God! You know, it's just 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 so so different than the film, and uh, I'm interested to sort of compare and contrast them. Not obviously not in real time, but in in less time than than I've done in the past. Well, it's too bad because I already read them thirty five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. I love you, Sam. Hi, I'm Paul, the host of the Comic Syllabus Podcast, a weekly show on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts. We read widely and we dig deep bringing different analytical approaches to our study and appreciation of the wide variety of comics out there. Along with comics teachers, critics, and creators, we do close readings of classic and current exemplars of the medium. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday here at multiversitycomics.com. So let's dig deep. And we are back. We're going to do things a little bit differently this week because there are a lot of books, but there's, there's five books that really stood out to us has uh, books we need to discuss, we need to get deep into. So we're going to tackle those five first, then we're going to do real quick recaps of the other books that were released this week. Uh, first up is Batman Lost, the Dark Knight's Metal. Not quite issue for this month, but this is this is sort of as close as we're getting to a, a metal issue this month. Uh, written by Scott Snyder, James Tynan IV, and Josh Williamson. Illustrated by Doug Monkey, Yannick Paquette, and Jorge Jimenez. And uh, this is this is a weird issue, guys. <laughs> yeah. What did you guys think of it? Um, at first, like when I was reading it, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is for me. I like this. This is cool." And then by the end of it, I I was like, oh, "I don't actually know if this was for me." <laughs> <laughs> so. So correct me if I'm wrong here. Essentially, the premise is that Batman is lost in the dark multiverse. Yeah. Multiverse, yeah, the dark multiverse, and he's essentially reliving stories from his past in his effort to escape from the dark multiverse, and he's having to remind himself that there's a window somewhere and he can get out, you know, Mm -hmm. am I, am I right? Am I? Well, I think, I think also he's experiencing either like, like illusionary worlds or, or like other dark multiverse. Yeah. At at one point, at one point, the Batman who laughs says something like there are infinite worlds here. I've shown you three. Mm, And so I, I feel like this is, um, you know, th- this is 
Batman trying to fight against what's happening, but what's happening is he's being shown three of these dark worlds. Yeah. I I guess... I kind of liked... I kind of liked the premise, and I liked most of it. I guess I felt it was a little long. Um... When when it first opened up and they're pulling books off of the shelf that are named after arcs of in Batman, like there's a Dark Victory book, yep. there's a harsh, there's a Hush book, there's a Nightfall uh, book. There's no Grant Morrison books in there though. <laughs> really? Oh, no, man. not one. Damn. I mean, this is such a lift of a Morrison story already. It really is. It's basically. I mean, it kind of. It really the, is. Yeah. The Return of Bruce Wayne type thing. There's a lot of those trappings there, including having Yannick Paquette around doing some of the art. Um, yeah. So it and and all the Doctor Hurt stuff, or um, the not Doctor Hurt. Um, Bar- Barbados, Barbados. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the this, yeah, yep. And the sacrifice. I guess that is Doctor oh. Hurt. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, mean it even mentioned that... the it mentioned the the hybrid after which was the yeah the the thing from the end of Return of Bruce Wayne yeah so I felt like I liked oh I liked some of the stuff that Snyder and and Tynion were playing with I really did and Williamson I guess was he involved in this he was, too yes. yeah. I liked these elements that they were playing with and trying to show, you know, that these are aspects of the dark multiverse that Batman's seeing. But I in the in the end when like when I closed the book, I I basically said to myself, well like that didn't that seemed like nothing. That seemed like absolutely it didn't add anything to the actual narrative. It seemed like it was a conceptual. There was a concept there and it didn't end up adding anything to the overall narrative. Does that make sense? It's a tie in. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I keep expecting, I keep expecting the tie ins that are actually written in part by Scott Snyder to be a little bit more, I feel like, and and this is probably exactly what's happening, I feel like they're just adding these things on. Like, oh shit, we're going to be delayed. We got to add a book in real quick. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what this, I think this was built into the schedule to give Capullo breathing room. Yeah. Um, And, you know, on one hand, like you were saying, there's a lot of stuff that conceptually is a lot of fun here. There, there's a lot. I mean, there's some great art in this book. You know, parts of this book looked absolutely gorgeous, uh, specifically the Paquette stuff and the Jimenez stuff. Uh, and that's no knock on Monkey. It's just that I, you know, the art's beautiful in this book. It's really, really nice. Um, but ultimately, this just feels like what what I felt with, with everything this the last couple weeks is that both Batman and Superman are trapped in the Dark Multiverse right now and they don't want to tell us what's happened to them yet. So everything that's been happening is just delaying the the part where we figure out what's going on with, with Batman and Superman. 
But the problem is the rest of this other stuff isn't all that interesting. And all you're doing is waiting all week as you're reading these books to find out what's going on with Bruce and Clark and you don't find out. I think this issue, it seemed like its purpose was to flesh out a little bit of more of this like mythology of the, you know, the birds and the bats that Snyder has been kind of percolating in the background. And there was like one interesting line I thought towards the end where um, Barbados is basically like talking about how Bruce has, has surrounded himself with, with birds, which I mean, this is just like a small thing, but I have always thought it was like really weird that all of the bat family characters are named after birds. <laughs> um, it's just like a weird little thing. And, you know, to have someone at least trying to like kind of explain that is, or give that, you know, significance and meaning is, is a little bit interesting, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I did enjoy a mustachioed Grandpa Bruce. <laughs> yeah. He looked like an actor, but I can't quite... What actor did he look like? Let me look at it again. Um, I think you're just confusing him with... Um, what's his name? Who played the comedian in Watchmen is going to be playing uh, <laughs> Thomas Wayne in the Flashpoint movie. No, he looks like Paul Newman from... Uh, Road to Perdition? Road to Perdition, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. I can see that. Sure. I'll buy that for a dollar. You win this one, Ostrowski. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alright, let's uh, jump over to Action Comics number 990 with the most Liefeldian <laughs> cover. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Jor-El just looks like, huh? Between that and Superman's uh, bulging bosom, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really, it's really quite dick. the cover. Quite the cover by, um, who did this cover? I think it's Bradshaw. Nick Bradshaw, yeah, yeah. Um, but this issue is the end of the Oz effect. Uh, Dan Jurgens did story and breakdowns. Victor Bidonovic illustrated it. Once again, Bogdanovic is doing amazing work here. But um, am I the only one who felt this ending was super shitty? Oh, oh yeah. man. What? Uh, <sighs> this is like reborn all over again, only yeah. even less happened. Like, really literally is. nothing it's, happened. It's literally the. I mean, we spent. I mean, I, Mr. Oz went back to his home planet. Yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> Died on the way back. He literally. We spent a year and a half trying to figure out who this guy was. And, like, after four issues, he's like, well, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably Jarrell. Peace. <laughs> Bye. Also, I mean, also. A part of me is kind of okay kind of happy that he was just being mind controlled but also he he was like just being mind controlled yeah you know yeah right right exactly <laughs> so so here how how many how many story arcs have we had so far in rebirth with Dan Jurgens writing where superman spends half of the issue going well this character is telling me this <laughs> how could he possibly know that if he were lying 
You know, like I've done full body scans of him. He's who he yeah, says yeah. he is. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. Like I feel like this is the third or fourth arc where they've had to do that. It's just, it's like Jurgens has to spend so much time convincing us that yes, this is really the real Jorel, not some comic book dickery, and and then to have him in the end just be like, see you later. <laughs> like, I'm probably your pops. <laughs> yep. Wait, you you call them grandpa? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not Pappy. I thought we established Pappy as the grandpa name. <laughs> And then, and then it's almost like uh, in the end when when they're like, "Oh, Clark, what are you what are you doing? Where are you going, Dad? Oh, back to work." Like it's supposed to be real dramatic, like back to work because these people need me. But really, it's more like well, it's like uh, it's like the end of um, the fourth Indiana Jones movie where Harrison Ford uncovers the aliens and they fly away in a giant spaceship, and he just kind of looks at them like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, he like doesn't bother acting surprised that the, or or in awe that this giant spaceship is coming out of the ground and flying away. You know, he just kind of looks at it as if like I'm kind of hungry. Can yeah. we go get a sandwich or something? <laughs> like, I feel like when when Clark shows up on uh, the Watchtower, Cyborg says like someone have a case of the Mondays. <laughs> oh, it's just Dad again. Exactly. Ah. Yeah. Man, what a. Especially because I feel like the last week or two, I have cared way more about this than I thought I would. Like the the, the Jorel reveal, I wasn't a huge fan of, but then it seemed like hey, something interesting is happening here. Nope, just mind controlled, just maybe not really his dad. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jurgens me once, shame on me. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. <sighs> Anything else to add? Bogdanovic's still still doing great stuff here. Oh, he's great. He's great. I he he is the one that sells like even the most boring scene. Um Yeah. Just just him drawing Superman flying, he looks like that's the that's the Superman I know and love. Slap some red trunks on him, and that's all he's missing. Yep. Well, let's deal with the other uh, bit of story that involves Mister Oz, kind of, and that's Detective Comics number nine sixty eight, written by James Tynion on the fourth, illustrated by Alvaro Martinez, and this is the conclusion of A Lonely Place of Living. Um, again, it has it has moved on from Jarrell. I mean, from Mr. Oz, rather. But talk about a story acting totally differently than the end of action. <laughs> oh, yeah. This book is good. It is. This this comic has whipped so much ass, really. Like, it, it's, it, it really is a contrast to action, which is a book that I think, you know we've said that we like some of the time, you know, I feel like, I feel like we've given that book a fair shake, you know, like we've praised it when it was good. We've criticized it when it was bad. Um, 
it, but what action does is it has a lot of arcs that purport themselves to 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 tell you that they're very important, and then you read them, and sometimes they do like cop outs that make them not as important, or they just don't feel as important as they should, you know? Yeah. Like all the fake Clark stuff ended up feeling way less important than it was. We were being led to believe. This book is like almost 100% of the time quote unquote important you know mm-hmm. it never feels like time is being wasted you know agreed um, it's fantastic I mean James Tynion has really grown and it's not just in cleaning up his dialogue a little bit or making things less wordy but but in how important his work feels, you know, like he's really letting loose and and putting he's leaving everything on the table basically. The yeah. stakes are the stakes are always high, I feel. Yeah, and this had a, a couple of really nice moments for the the Gotham Knights, as it were. Like there, there's the scene where um, Batwoman is trying to get. The other team members to leave and she'll hold them off and cast says no together and it's luke and uh cast and asriel and clayface and kate all together and it just showed you know neither bruce nor dick is in that shot and it didn't feel incomplete because tynan has built up those characters to be equal leads on this book and so you see those characters and it just feels right Man, he has done such a great job. I was thinking about that today. He has done such a great job with the the cast in this book. Even someone like Luke Fox, who came in after the first arc and hasn't had like an issue totally dedicated to him just yet, even he feels like he has grown and adapted a lot into this book. I just I am loving what what he's doing here. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This is, I, I mean, I I love this book. I think it's, I think it's great. I, you know, it's amazing how it's kind of worked its way up into probably like one of my top three favorite rebirth books right now. Um, and I'm really excited to see where this story goes next. Although the way it ends, kind of makes me a little less um, sure about the the super sons of tomorrow connection i'd been predicting right mm-hmm. yeah i don't know we'll see yeah I, I still think it's weird that there's like so much similarity going on there but i don't know i do i do really like where they end with this like future tim though and hope it's maybe not the last time we see him i just i just loved that that page of the two tims like looking out at the city together. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of some miracle shit actually because normally when you have the like uh you know alternate version of a character well I love that stuff. I love it because it's so comic booky and it's often it comes with like cool designs or like you know interesting takes on similar characters. It, it never really feels substantial, you know? And it, and it doesn't have to. Like, a lot of the time, like, when I see the, the Batman of Earth, whatever, you know, 
it doesn't have to be this fully fleshed out character that feels substantial for me to look at it and like it, you know, but when, when you base the story kind of around this alternate Tim where he's been with us for several issues, I think it's really important then that you do flesh out that character. You make him distinct and you also make it so that you understand and feel the situation that he's in, you know? Right. And I feel like usually that falls flat and you end up disliking these characters, you know? And while he was like clearly the bad guy in this particular situation, you saw how he got there. And I I felt like it was legitimate, you know? Yeah. And I feel like by the end, when when the, the current Tim, like the quote unquote real Tim, is standing looking at looking outside the broken window. Aping Fight Club? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yep, thank you. Uh, that's really earned. You know, like, I feel the weight there. And the, the words, Tim, Tim, are you there? Is he gone? Is it over? Just the sort of emptiness that he's experiencing right in that moment. Um, man, they really they really knocked that home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This is This is an excellent comic right now. Really, really firing on all cylinders. And uh, now that Tim is back, I'm excited to see how the team shapes up. I wonder if, if a team member is going to, to leave or not. They've sort of been doing this even swap, like, you know, um, Asriel kind of joined in place of Steph, and uh, Luke kind of joined in place of Tim's. So I wonder if the team is going to shrink back down or if it's going to keep its current size. I don't know. We'll see. We shall see. That brings us to Mr. Miracle, number four, written by uh, Tom King, illustrated by Mitch Gerrids. Um, this issue felt the most Tom Kingy so far. <laughs> Would you guys agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The the veggie plate. Something about the veggie plate. <laughs> I actually had no problem with the veggie plate. I liked it. I'm going to break a lot of my own. I'm breaking my one rule tonight. <laughs> oh, I think I think this is my least favorite issue of this series so far. Yeah. Oh. I I understand that. I I'm not sure if it's mine or not, but I could definitely to me this had way more king all over it than any of the other ones did. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There are definitely things I like about it, but there are some things I uh, the, uh, I want to like the veggie plate, but it's just so <laughs> it feels so out of place. <laughs> it, Mo- mostly the Orion bit. Oh, I lo- see. I loved that, and I think it's <laughs> I don't know the timing of it all when when he gets like Scott is like freaking out at him he like bashes him in the face yep and then he's just screaming at him for like several panels and i think garrett's art does a really great job of conveying all of this i think really with without such specific takes from garrett's this would totally fall flat but then like just the shocked look on orion's like dopey like to me he just looks like a dope well, see, that's the thing. Like, it feels so comedic to me, you know? Well, like, but it does, but it snaps. Like, 
when he's sitting there and he goes, Jesus, like they're literally in a trial that determines whether Scott is a traitor to, uh, you know, his empire and, you know, could be cast out or executed for it or whatever. And then he gets like punched in the face and Orion's like, Jesus, like as if, you know, like I, I like the contrast there and then him like pausing to eat a carrot. And then going on with the whole guilty, you know, you're guilty, I'll perform your execution thing. I I get that the tone shift is really sharp there. But something about this that they've established already kind of works for me. Like, here's the thing. Batman, from pretty much the start, was like, I don't get this tone. It's not working for Batman. I don't understand this at all. This tone, like, from issue one was established in a way that I thought, like, made sense. I get it. I get how King and Garrods are bringing in this real-world uh, veneer to the new gods. And now that I'm four issues in, at this point, I will take a ridiculous veggie plate joke and, and accept it in a way that I can't accept things that Batman is doing because I never bought in in the first place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm talking, yeah. I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. No, no, no I agree I'll, with all that. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you too. I think to a degree. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more palatable than it is in, you know, than it is with Batman, but I, it, it's, you're right. It, the, the disconnect is smaller here. Um, I will also say that I, I think that Orion has been presented as kind of a dummy since the beginning, and I think it's clear that Scott doesn't take Orion seriously, and so having them kind of clown on Orion a little bit here with with the veggie plate thing doesn't seem out of out of character or different from the tone that's been established the whole series so far. He's just been a lot more menacing, though. Orion, here, he just yeah. But see, I I think he's trying to come off that way because he's the new High Father, and he's trying to present that tone. But I don't think anybody takes him seriously. Well, yeah. Just the way Barda talks to Light Ray about him. Oh yeah, I I don't know. He just he seemed more sinister so far, and to have him like go from this like very sinister figure from the last two issues to this like really dopey goon, which I mean, maybe that, you know, the sinister thing is a facade. And I just thought that it, it just dropped really quickly (laughs) in the face of, I mean, maybe that's what he was going for in the face of Scott's kind of like breakdown there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think ultimately that's the part that shows that, well, you know, they're essentially brothers and when you strip when you strip away the the god the godliness and the costumes, they are just brothers having a spat essentially. <laughs> and yeah, it's being done in like a overly dopey way with this veggie plate, but like for a split second that falls away and you see them as brothers, you know. Yeah. Man, um, one thing I <laughs> one thing that I kept thinking about during this issue is 
with how as many times as they invoke the name of Christ, it really makes me like wonder about the DC cosmology and how, uh, <laughs> how the, the hierarchy of um, of um, of gods, god godly figures works. <laughs> yeah, they should have let uh, Grant Morrison do his Jesus book at DC. <laughs> yep, Savage Sword of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you're right. You're right. One day. Someday. Yeah. Um, I love the way Garrett's draws Mr. Miracle's eyes. Yeah. And I feel like this issue was, there was no better example than this issue for like how good that is for expressions. Um, oh yeah, this is a gorgeous book. Yeah. Yeah. I made it's... a, I, you know, I made a, you know, constant listeners will recall in last week's episode, I made a joke about um, reusing the same panels, and it's really not as bad as I had alluded <laughs> to. But there's like one page where he's doing his um, like barrel stunt, and there's like so little on the on like he he is such a small figure in each of the panels. Um, but I love that page actually. Well, there's like, also the train. one of the pages where where he and Orion are arguing. It looks like the same panel is used three or four times. Yeah, there are subtle differences. Um, if you'll notice, like at least in the background, the background is shifting, kind of indicating that these characters are maybe going closer or further right, away from right, one another. Yeah. And I think there's some slight change in facial expression on Scott's face. I think Scott's face deteriorates a little bit each time you see him. I think the Orion, I think Orion is the same in every panel. But if you look at Scott, like his mouth droops, you know, his like yeah. cheeks droop, his mouth droops the longer this goes on, and um, it's kind of a cool effect, and. Uh, I love how there's always the Mr. Miracle poster somewhere in the background. Yep. Um, and what else? I mean... I love that I, this uh, at uh, the end of this issue, you get a real good sense of the, the scope of how big Barda actually is. Like, when Barda's holding Scott, he looks tiny. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think it's a nice little touch. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is the the part where they're going back and forth with the questioning where Orion are, is making statements and Scott has to say true or false, you know? Yep. That's such a that's such a Tom King thing that kind of as I said earlier, I would hate in if it, if he did it in like Batman. Like imagine Batman was being put on trial by the Riddler or something. I would just hate it because I haven't bought into his Batman. But in this, I feel like, again, I've bought into the world. These are new gods, and this this matter that he's being questioned on, they're like questions of – they're like grand questions sometimes, right. you know, about the nature of hate, the nature of emotion, you know. And I feel like between the two of them in this particular world – that really worked for me in a way that it wouldn't work in most other books. And so again, I think, I think Mr. Miracle is the type of venue where Tom King can do those ideas and they don't seem 
silly or ill-fitting for for the the comic that he's writing, you know? Yeah. Or the property he's in. Zach, anything else to add? Uh, no. I still, I mean, I still think pretty highly of these this series. Um, I just didn't care for this issue as much. That's fair. Um, that brings us over to Titans, number 17, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Minkyu Young. Thank goodness it's not Brett Booth. Oh, Minkyu's art looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, you, you had like a joke or something that you wanted to tell us about this or, I, or an observation. I did. Uh, let, let me, let me find it here. Um, <laughs> I, I love, first of all, I love the attention to detail in this joke. And I love that we have in undoubtedly influenced the way this book is written. Because there's a scene, and if you're looking at the PDF, it's page, uh, let's see, page 14. Where it's, you know, older <laughs> older Troya is going through and telling Donna, kind of going through the story of her life. And there's a part where they're taking a group photo, and Aqualad is eating some rubbery pizza. And even without Brett Booth... There is still rubbery pizza in every issue of Titans. <laughs> Vince, is, is it, isn't your Twitter handle currently uh, display name? Rubber Rubber Titans, rubber Titans pizza. pizza. Yes, there we go. Yep, it's my new uh, Antifa pizza chain that I'm going to be starting to combat against the Papa John's uh, Nazi pizza. Are you going to so. behead me as a white parent? The date has passed, Brian. Uh, I'm maybe, I'm I'm still vigilant. Maybe next November fourth. I haven't slept in weeks. I sit on my front steps and I wait. Uh, I wait for the reckoning to come. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get back to this issue. Uh, we're getting a lot in Rebirth of future versions of people interacting with their past selves. Um, but this doesn't feel. This somehow feels different. Do you agree? Mm, I don't know if I think it feels different. I think it feels startlingly similar to the the Tim Drake stuff we were just talking about. Because with the Tim Drake stuff, we saw we also saw alternate. You know what happened to Jason? What happened to Dick? Etc. A lot of them came to like very stark conclusions to their superhero careers or lives in some case. And uh, and here, too, is the same thing. So I thought that this felt a lot like the Tim Drake stuff, too. See, I guess the reason I feel that this is different is that it's not... I, I, Zach, you go first. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this, so... You go I don't really. I don't know if I have a lot to say about it. It's um, it feels less relevant, or or you know, something about the fact that it, it doesn't feel as impactful because, whereas the Tim Drake in Detective comes from a very distinct future. Um, this, this Troya comes from a very vague point, thousands and thousands of years in the future, 
where things have happened and it's a, it's just a lot less focused and so i didn't feel like it had the same impact as see, the tim drake stuff does see it's funny this reminded me in a in a weird way of the last couple of issues of legion lost that we read mm-hmm. where yeah where there's this you know future version where the timeline has sort of collapsed on itself because everything is so far in the past and you know, knowledge comes and goes and that sort of thing. I, I guess the reason I was going to say that this feels different to me is I feel like with Tim dying and then, or quote dying, and then the alternate version showing up there, it was playing with our emotions of a character that we love and we were missing. And I feel like Donna Troy in Rebirth is not that. I mean, we haven't had a real Donna Troy. I know there was that Meredith Finch fiasco <laughs> from a little while ago, but we haven't really had a Donna Troy since that last page of James Robinson's Justice League where, like, she and Dick are talking about, will anybody remember them? And I feel like because we don't have necessarily the, the current positive association with Donna, this felt in a way like a way... This felt like a way to give readers an introduction a a deeper introduction to the character by using a potential alternate version instead of with the tim story where it wasn't an introduction to the character it was more of a reinforcing of what makes the character so great i I know that might seem like a subtle difference but to me there really is a difference there i like that explanation i do thank you um but yeah, I did think it was a little bit disturbing how we get so many shots of just dead Wally all the time. Like, there are a number of scenes where there's like a fight going on. You look in the corner and there's dead Wally just lying there. <laughs> a little jarring. Uh, I mean, obviously, dead is in quotes here. And we see young Wally sort of recognize that old Wally is not necessarily dead and trying to do something about it. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to see old Wally back sooner than later. We know he's in Flash War as of January, so he can't mm-hmm. be gone for that long. Um, but, yeah. Any other Titans thoughts? Um... No, I, I, Brent Booth can go hang out on action for <laughs> as long as he wants. Agreed. All right, let's. We're just gonna fly through some of these books now. Um, try and uh, get through all of them quickly. Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. Anything to add here, boys? I. I think this arc is really fun. I I think I said last time uh, this was like comics as wrestling because all the all the ladies were teaming up, you know, and it was it was being really unabashed about just how fun it was trying to be mashing all these characters together, uh, regardless of what's happening in any other books. That continues now, and I had even more fun this time around. yeah, there's some like corny jokes in there, but I'm just getting a kick out of seeing all the all the women in action. 
Um, there was a weird lettering mistake in here, too. Oh, lay it on me. I love these. Uh, I gotta find it now. Essentially, so this... It's always tricky. We've said this before. Like We get these books in PDF form. And so sometimes like a double page double page spread will be will be out will will appear odd to read because you're you're only getting it one page at a time. But there's a part where um where Batwoman is trying to talk to Renee Montoya and like she mentions Renee before we even see Renee. It's I I can't I'm not finding it in the moment here. We're trying to be fast mm. about this, so let's just get off this. But there was a, a weird lettering thing here in this in this issue. Yeah. Zach, did you even crack the PDF? I flipped through it. That's about it. Okay. Ro- Roger Antonio's art was a little rushed, I think, though. Yeah, there are a few. Like, um, some of the faces, like on that uh, second page, Harley Quinn's face is... <laughs> yeah. And, and Black Canaries, too, sort of. And Yeah. Um, but you know, gotta get your Gotham girl fixed somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yarp. Let's let's jump on over to Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. Let's not. By Venditti and Van Skyver. I will say one, one positive about this issue. I really enjoy... Hal's relationship with his niece and nephew. I like Hal. I like Hal's relationship with his brother's family a lot. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. Um, I thought the strobe effect was interesting. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just, some of the panels I, were blacked out. You mean? Yeah, yeah. And, like I thought that. He basically says, "Like, let's strobe up." You know. Yeah. <laughs> Can I? I'm going to do a little line reading here, okay? All right, go for it. You stepped up to the mic with your emo crap. Oh, God. I came to rock, and my show isn't over. Oh, I get it, because it's metal. <laughs> yeah. When I first read the line, I was like, that's a really terrible line. And then I remembered all the, the rock puns and shit from yeah. metal, and then I was like, it's a slightly less bad line, but... Still pretty bad. Kind of reminded me of that Beverly Hills 90210 episode with the flaming lips. Like, I'm not usually <laughs> a fan of alternative music, but these guys rock. You know that, that yeah, kind of yeah, uh, yep, that kind totally. of terrible dialogue with yep. with squeezing in the name of the genre of the band. Uh, I mean, let's be let's be honest. Hal Jordan listens to you know brand new. I'm sure he does. <laughs> <coughs> sure, why not? Uh, let's jump over to Justice League of America, number 18, written by Steve Orlando, with guest art this week by, um, oh, who did this issue? It, it looked nice. It was Hugo Petrus. Hugo Petrus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hugo Petrus can come back whenever he wants. Yeah, agreed. Was this supposed to be Gavin McInnes, like, as the documentarian or something? <laughs> He's like a dapper... I mean, Gavin McGinnis sucks. Don't don't get me wrong, but <laughs> I don't know. He's yeah, he's like dapper and he's got the mustache and I don't know. Uh, anyway, 
I uh, I really didn't like this. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, Zach, lay it on us. Oh, I just like. I just thought everybody in this book was weird. So you're not you're really not feeling this book. I'm not. Like I just thought every character's reaction to things was just like really hyper dramatic. Um I like I it just seemed so <sighs> it seemed so implausible that they would let this documentarian come in who was asking such like weirdly pointed and manipulative questions yeah. and that they would actually be affected by it. You know, like also it felt like, it felt like Batman had like stepped out to go get some milk and, <laughs> yeah. they, and he was just like, he abandoned you. <laughs> well, we all know that no, no, no uh, B list or C list hero can do anything if they don't have Batman with them. Right. 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 Now, my question is this. Does this take place during Metal? Is that... Is the implication that that's where Batman's run off to? I believe that was established somewhere. I feel like I remember seeing that. About that it is Metal? Yes, that okay. that's well, why Batman. That gone. doesn't make sense, though, because, like, all of the world is, like, gone to hell during Metal. Right. It's, like, not just Gotham. It's, like, everywhere is bad. Listen, man, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I, I found this issue. I found that there was some good stuff about this issue. There was some not so good stuff about this issue. You know, a lot of times a uh, an interviewer is is there for just like blatant exposition, and that was certainly part of this. But you know, I enjoy. I think I enjoy Orlando's takes on these individual characters more than I enjoy his take on how the characters interact with each other. So to get a little bit of Lobo, a little bit of Killer Frost, all that, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I like that take. I think that's how I feel. Even if the issue felt slight at times and, uh, you know. I know know what Zach is saying, though, because, like, I'm looking at this part with the Ray again oh that's the worst part of the issue and i'm thinking like well yeah why is he like freaking out like this i feel like there's something going on that we don't no there's not there's probably not (laughs) never mind i don't know i don't know let's let's move on uh michael cray number two uh brian hill illustrated by n stephen harris we get uh, we get the confrontation to Michael Cray and Ollie Queen. We get the setup for the next issue going after Barry Allen. I don't know how I feel about this being like uh, Justice League Hunger Games or whatever, <laughs> but I still really enjoyed the issue. Oh man, I'm gonna be another downer again. What? I did, I thought this was not great. Oh, Zach, I thought it, you're killing I, me. I thought it was very slight. I thought that the like opening steampunk VR training session was really weird. I thought that was weird. Yeah. yeah. I I just like. Uh, I Are you like telling me, stuff. Zach, that if I set up a steampunk VR podcast training module, you wouldn't be down with that? Oh, I'd be down with it for sure, but okay. I don't know if I'd want it to take up like the first three or four pages of a twenty-page comic. That's fair. I'm oh. speaking into the megaphone now. Yes, yes. 
Um, I'm I'm like really interested in the stuff that's like happening with with Cray, like his like power stuff, I guess. How but... he can melt people's arms off and shit. Yeah, that was weird. I thought that they were gonna go for like a Dark Knight Returns, um, Green Arrow, like that was the origin for that one armed arrow, a Green Arrow who like pulls bowstrings with his teeth. Oh, um, yeah. I thought that's what we were gonna get, but no, not at all. Um, it just, yeah, it. I I don't really understand the purpose of this comic right now, just in terms of, you know, we get four spinoff, three three spinoff series of the main book, and this is one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of get it. Like, if if I'm to understand what Warren Ellis is doing, he's trying to reestablish Wildstorm, and I think his approach seems to be, or their approach, seems to be to murk, like, DC characters that we know and love to say to to make no bones about like they're not going to be a part of this, you know. And Wildstorm can stand up to them, you know, or you know, the Wildstorm characters, I mean. And so I kind of feel like it's just sort of doing a like metatextually doing away with this idea that you know, these characters are really going to cross over and become teammates and things like that you know uh, i don't think it was really necessary to do that but yeah I'm kind, of having, I'm kind of having fun with it it is fun but it's also i mean it it kind of seems like the um the equivalent to like the the bats out of hell crossover you know like God, that hurts man that's <laughs> like let's have this this spinoff series where one of the characters just hunts alternate versions of <laughs> DC Universe characters. I, I wonder if that's just the first, like, four issues to get people on board. Maybe. Mm. You know how people love their alternate versions and stuff. They do. They do. Yeah, I, uh, do. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't expect it. I was genuinely surprised when that's, you know, we got Barry at the end, because I didn't necessarily expect it to be that kind of book, you know? Right. We'll see. Yeah. Let's move on to New Superman number 17, written by Gene Lewin Yang, illustrated by Joe Lelich. Lelich, perhaps? I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Um, We get the Justice League of China versus the Justice League of the United States of America of the world. I don't even know how you'd qualify this Justice League team. Um, and uh, there's some fun interaction between the various Justice League uh, members. My favorite part was Aquaman looking forward to meeting the Aquaman of uh, yeah. of China, only to find yeah. out there isn't one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Poor my favorite Arthur. part. My favorite part was uh, Barry continuing to be the biggest horn dog in uh, DC Rebirth. It's yeah. tough between him and Dick, though. Like, yeah, yeah. I think we've seen more of it. I think we've seen more explicit material of Dick being a horn dog, but I feel like Barry has uh, pulled, but yeah. pulled, pulled in more lady ladies. Well, 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 yeah, he's got Iris, Mina, Jessica, and and this 
girl fawning over him. Yeah. Oh, wait. Who's the other girl? The 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 Flash of China. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you're are, right. Are okay. you all right there, big guy? Uh, yeah. yeah right. Nice okay. move, Flash. I had a great yeah. teacher, Flash. Yeah. Teach me, okay. teach me more. Teach yeah. me more, Daddy. That's that part I added in. <laughs> yeah. It was implied. Yeah. It's absolutely the subtext. <laughs> um, this issue also sees uh, Keenan break into one of Lex's properties and not give a fuck. <laughs> I, probably one of the best lines of maybe the whole series where um, China has had Western style property laws for the last decade. Do you not understand? <laughs> How do you not understand? <laughs> oh, man. This book is so good, guys. It's a lot of fun. And I even came around on the, on the Lalich art. At first, I was like, Ooh, I don't know. But then, by the end, I was totally, totally into it. It's a little different from what we've come to expect from this book. All the characters look a little bit squat, I think. You know? Mm-hmm. But, it, but it's really dynamic. Art and... See, that's what I was gonna say. It was a, to me, it, it evokes Bogdanovic in just the the sort of kinetic nature of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else to add? Um, I just, I just want to, I want to add on a personal note, real quick. I started reading the '70s Wonder Woman era. In, in my off time, and uh, it's the introduction of I Ching, um, you know, who we've seen here in, in New Superman, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Gene Yang is way better at writing a, a Chinese character, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Um, well, let's, let's talk about Ragman number two. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. I fell asleep just thinking about Ragman. Uh, holy shit, guys! Uh, the the art was pretty good. Yeah, Anaki Miranda's art looks great, and and I, I will give it the credit of it told the entire origin story in two issues. <laughs> I think. I think. Yeah. Um, but the, really, this is a pretty boring comic. Right? Yeah. Alright, moving on. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 16, by Scott Lobdell and Dexter Soy. A lot of hashtag humor here. I'm so glad that the the Ravager stuff is still in Rebirth canon. Isn't that, like, really great? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, maybe the worst crossover in the New 52... Oh man, I don't know that hell. Uh, what was the hell one? Hellspawn. Now the 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 Superman crossover. Oh, towards the end. No, it was like early. Really? The, like H apostrophe E L. It was a, It was like oh, right before. Yeah. Oh. Okay. It was like around the like twenty four twenty five issue point. Hmm. Well, both had Lobdell involvement. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. What about the culling? Well, that was the calling is the Ravager. That is the yeah. Ravager thing. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. Yeah. 
That is the stuff. Um, Forgive me for not remembering the shittiest. No, I, I wish I could have the bliss of ignorance with this. Um, I mean, to be fair, it's not used... It's not obnoxiously used here, right? It's given, no, the, it's, no. it's given the team a mission. I think there's like six people on the planet who know what Lobdell is doing here, which is <laughs> the three of us, Lobdell, and I guess his parents maybe. Like, it's it's not like it's a... I, it, what? I love the, the deal, but... I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the Lobdell book. Guys, we need more culling I, I in every book. It. I was doing a Bernie Sanders, and I said the deal... <laughs> We need the culling to cross over with the Wildstorm. God um, damn it. Uh, but, but no, let's, um, you know, again, it, it's stupid. I don't think anybody liked that crossover. This seems like Lobdell just wanting to reuse an idea that he already came up with five years ago. Um, but it's not necessarily, like, the dumbest thing that's been done here. Um, no, and it's not really the focal point of this particular issue anyway. I mean, like... right. And by the way, Brainiac uh, Bizarro is just the best. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I have an important question for you guys. Is this the best appearance of the Suicide Squad in the New Fifty Two in, in the Rebirth? Is this crossover the best Suicide Squad we've gotten? Sure. Why not? I mean, it's not saying much, obviously, but great Google. I did. I, I, yeah, I didn't mind the the bit with Artemis and Harley Quinn. It was fun. Yeah, it was. It was. It was fine. I liked it. Yeah. Let's get into Suicide Squad proper. Unfortunately, uh, with oh, look at the cover of this issue with uh, Harley Swift or uh, Taylor Harley, however, <laughs> Taylor Quinn. Here, um, That's twisted. Fuck me. Uh, Tony Daniel, man, he's he's damaged. Um, more of this space bullshit. I don't care about. Is that is that is that uh, Tom Petty as as Captain Boomerang on the cover? Are you back on the cover? Let's, okay, let's, let's I'm, do this. I'm back on the cover. I didn't. I didn't go past the cover, so I'm not sure what. Oh, okay, I did. Um... I could buy Tom Petty as that, or you know what? That's that's more accurately Willem Dafoe. <laughs> oh, Here. William Dafoe of um of Justice League fame, yes. Of, of death, oh, I was gonna say of Death Note fame. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, hell yeah. I will uh, not have you disrespect Volko in that way. That's <laughs> right, he's Volko. <laughs> I also like how. Uh, Killer Croc and the gorilla and the demon thing are all making the exact same expression. Uh, I yeah, I didn't read this, so not missing anything. No, okay. Moving on, Supergirl number fifteen, written by Steve Orlando and Jody Hauser, illustrated by Robson Roca. Um. I thought this was actually a very good issue of Supergirl. Yes. Yeah, I think so too, man. I I really like Roka's art here. Yeah. I think it, it it gives... This issue gave Kara more of a distinct situation 
in life. It, it, it gave her something to do that no other character is really doing in Rebirth right now. The, like, laying low, not wanting to be caught thing. I thought it gave her parents a couple of really nice moments of, of like, them drinking wine on the porch and trying to figure out how to be good parents to her. There, there was a lot of stuff in this issue that just felt like it couldn't have happened in another book. And that's, I think that's more than anything else, that's what I want out of my comics. I want each book to feel like it's really unique and that you're getting something that is only going to happen in that book. Does that, does that appeal to you guys as well? That's perfect, yeah. I think um, I've, I have been dying to care about what Kara does outside of being Supergirl, you know? Mm-hmm. And Steve Orlando has just not, like, I've liked the Supergirl parts, but he's not gotten there with the Kara as a student part. And this issue really did that for me. Like, it gave me enough of that. It gave me a really interesting hook into that um, that previous issues hadn't. And so... This was, yeah, this was a great, probably one of my favorite Supergirl issues so far, along with that annual that I really liked. And, um, oh, and Jody Hauser wrote on this too. Yeah, yep. I forgot about that. Yeah, you maybe you mentioned that. But, um, yeah, so I don't know what she added or what, you know, what involvement was there, but um, it, it was appreciated, I'm sure. I mean, this is wild speculation, but, you know, her work with Faith over in Valiant, one of the best things about, I don't know if either of you guys have read Faith or are somewhat recent with uh, with Faith, but Faith is one of these books that has a really distinct and interesting line between what the hero Faith does and what her day job life is like. Okay. And so I wonder if, uh, if the improved Kara as a student stuff isn't just uh, Jody Hauser bringing some of that same magic to this. Mm, that could be. Yeah. Um, that brings us to Superwoman, number 16. Well, Zach, did you have anything oh, yeah, sorry. to say much about that? No, not really. Okay. okay. Uh, Superwoman, uh, 16, written by Kay Perkins, illustrated by Steven Segovia. Uh, we're starting to get to the end game here. We see the return of Lana Luthor. Um, we're seeing a lot more of like Natasha and Tracy as important supporting characters in this book. What'd you guys think of this? Zach, you got anything? I sadly, like it's kind of hard for me to like get too invested in this book because I know it's ending in a few issues. Um, like I probably would be more excited about those things if I thought it, it was going to like continue and go somewhere. Um, as is, it's kind of like a little, it's a little sore, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I said in previous, in a previous week that I didn't give a crap about this midnight, whatever it was. And I still don't, but but I kind of reflected on what you said last time, Brian, about how you just like these characters all together. Mm-hmm. 
and I really, I really did enjoy it on that level. Um, I still don't give a crap about the the villain, but well, um, but because the villain is like a manifestation of Lena Luthor, that doesn't do anything for you. No, it really doesn't, because it doesn't. I don't. Yeah, that was like the reveal, but like, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't really. It didn't really have much impact. I was just like, oh, okay, it's, you know, it's, yeah. Well, I feel like one of the things that I really liked about the Phil Jimenez early issues of this was this idea of giving Lana her own version of Lex in Lena Mm -hmm. and sort of her, like, arch nemesis. And then she defeats her and she goes away. And so to see her come back before the end of the run, I think that that's... I don't. Know. I, I to me that make me they made me care about this character a whole the midnight character a whole lot more. Um, mm-hmm. But I get it. I get it. I'll I'll be the last one out here crying about this book's cancellation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not happy about it, but I understand, especially like when Cyborgs arrives. <laughs> uh, to be written by Brian Michael Bendis. Yep. There we go. Uh, next up, The Flash, number 34, written by uh, Josh Williamson and Michael Morisi, with illustrations by uh, Pop Mahan. We get the return of Mina. We get the return of evil Mina. Boy, I really wish they hadn't uh, essentially spoiled that on the cover. Yep. <laughs> oh. Well, we'll talk about this, but this is the, the first of two books this week that have a character being baited for essentially an entire issue just to get hoodwinked. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And you see it the entire way. Yeah, coming. of course. Of course. Yeah. I will say that the reverse Flash costume looks great. Oh, not, yeah. Not the reverse, sorry. The negative Flash the costume. The negative Flash. I really like the design of it. The Flash, one of those costumes, is hard to mess up. And just mm-hmm. the simplicity of it, I really, really like. I think Mahan's man. Mahan, do we know how we're pronouncing that? We're just gonna say Mahan. 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 All right. I think that. Uh, I think there the art in this issue is great. I really love this issue visually. And, yeah, fantastic. And every, every one of these pages is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I also like. I like that Barry and Wally are doing more together here. That was a good thing about last issue as well. Is I like seeing them interacting together. Zach, anything to say? No, I again like. I really did enjoy this issue up until the ending, which I just thought was really just like in this other in the other book that I'm alluding to. Really. Yeah kind of lame and and just so comic booky and in a not great way i think if uh, one of the if one of the books had done it it wouldn't have been as egregious well maybe this uh, version of it is way better than the other one i'll say that well it it is i would say this version is way more telegraphed but it is handled better if if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's get to that other let's book. Let's get to that. 
Uh, any any guesses, listeners? It's the one book we haven't talked about. It's alphabetically the last book that we're going to get there. It's uh, Wonder Woman number 34, written by James Robinson, illustrated by Sergio Davila. Um, we get a lot here about Jason. We find out he is named after and cared... They have to, Jason, the Argonauts, Jason and cared for by one of the OG Argonauts, who Hercules was also an Argonaut, which I don't know if that's, if that was established. Is that, is that canon? Yeah, I, I don't know if that's, if that's if that's established by anything other than James Robinson here. Um, Why couldn't this Jason just be the real Argonaut? Yeah, wouldn't that make it so much more interesting? <laughs> yes. I had the same thought. I've thought that ever since his name was Jason. I was like, oh, like Jason the Argonauts. No, not that real one. <laughs> Just, god damn it! Uh... He also continues to look kind of like John Ham, but like John Ham in the Sergio sketch from SNL, <laughs> where he where he plays the the saxophone. Yes. Yeah. That's a good. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> He kind of has a mullet going on. Yeah, yeah. Sergio. <laughs> um, I actually, I was going to say about Davila's art, I feel like Jason looked very different panel to panel. Mm-hmm. There's almost no consistency with his face whatsoever. Um, I know that next issue we're supposedly getting, like, the history of Jason to find out why he's a dick. Oh, but, just what I wanted. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I just feel like this whole book so far is just so herky-jerky. It gives you a little bit of something and then rewinds back way past the point. Like, you know you know when, when your remote control battery was going when you were a kid with your VHS player? And you'd try and fast forward past the commercials, but you'd keep going too far. And then you'd have to rewind again to get back to where you wanted to be, but you'd go far so far back that you're like before the commercials even started. That's what this book feels like. It's just jumping around for no good reason. What's VHS? Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, he says. Oh, man. Oh. He was really angry about that. So much of my childhood was defined by a, a VCR. I'm not going to listen to this bullshit. What? Stop. Wait, you said VHS last time. Will you fucking stop? <laughs> I was more getting like, the chat with like eight track or or records. <sighs> records. Eight track. Records. records. Moving records, on here. Okay. I like your your message in the group chat, Vince. We got some more. Uh, <laughs> uh, we we didn't talk about the nut faces. No, we didn't. We're gonna we're gonna publish a coffee table book next year called <laughs> Nut Faces of Rebirth. <laughs> and, <laughs> In our author's page, we're going to have to all do our own nut faces. Yeah. Everybody do yours right now and no one will see. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it as hard as I can. Uh, my <laughs> nut face looks a lot like when Weird Al was playing Rambo in uh, UHF. <laughs> I still don't think. I don't think any of them are ever going to top the one from Green Arrow last week. <laughs> Yeah. That's my favorite one ever. Yeah, that was great. 
Mine is uh mine is the exact second that uh uh the eyes bug out in uh Pee Wee's Big Adventure of Large Marge. <laughs> Uh, Zax is the Korg from the Star Wars trailer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, can we just say how disappointing this run is? Yeah, it's I'm what really bad. I want to know what Robinson does after this. I mean, aside from Trinity, yeah, that's not going to be that's not going to be any good either. <laughs> Yeah, I really feel like this is just he's just cleaning up the messes of of continuity in the most boring way possible. We'll see. We shall see. Anyway, that does it for us in this installment of the DC Three Cast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate it. We love having you around. We uh, we're gonna fucking watch Watchmen, the director's cut, because of you guys. So. We, we appreciate you guys quite a bit. Um, you can find all three of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'm at SirFox89. And go to MultiversityComics.com for all your comics, news, reviews, commentary, etc. And come back next week for the finale of Watchmen. And, uh, yeah, enjoy. America, America, this is you.